um, chaos um, just now. I'm praying about that. I'm just aware that what is about to happen could be very chaotic. I'm sorry to say, it may not be a slick presentation. Uh, uh, I messed up the PowerPoint, and then the computer messed it up, and then Mike is trying to resolve it. But there might be some stuff that comes up, but it might be all over the place. But I have my flip chart, uh, which is not a good idea. If you remember the last time I wrote on a flip chart, that wasn't a good thing. Uh, but we won't go into that. Okay, let us, let us pray. So, Father, we, we pray that as we come to the written word, that we might be drawn afresh to Jesus, the one who is the living word. And, and Father, I pray... Um, that as we worship and as we look at the scriptures tonight, uh, there would be that sense of deep calling unto deep. Father, I sense that there are some people here uh, who have been in deep places, but they're in the shallows, and uh, there's a yearning inside of them to go back into the deep with you. But uh, sometimes we just don't know how to do that. But Father, I pray that your spirit might do a work in hearts and minds tonight. Transform our minds, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, last week we had questions and chocolate. This week we just have um, questions. Um, so, uh, who has heard of the Code of Hammurabi? If you've heard of that, put your hand up. That's one, two. You're not sure, Richard. Would you, do you, what can you tell me about the Code of Hammurabi, Richard? <laughs> no? Okay. Yeah, Babylonian, yeah. Robin, what can you say about that? Huh? The same. Okay, so you just know. So basically, I'll, I'll explain what it is. Um, the Code of Hammurabi came around about 1,700 years before Christ, so nearly 4,000 years ago, and Hammurabi was a Mesopotamian king, hence the Babylonian um, empire. And um, basically, uh, Hammurabi wrote down 300 laws... Uh, that formed a moral code. Uh, and he put these laws together as to how his subjects should live a good life. And the hope was it would carry on generation to generation. Obviously, that didn't stand the test of time. Okay, who has heard of the Maxims of Delphi? John? What? They're not, a, they're not a pop group or anything, John. Tell me who you think they are. What is it? Ah, oh, yes. Okay, good. Anything else? Maxims of Delphi. Wise sayings. Okay, so I'll, I'll fill out on that. So basically, they took place in 6th century Greece, and, and they were 147 sayings, wise sayings, or commands, like help your friends, uh, fear what controls you, and subdue pleasure, and then 144 others. And, and basically, the idea was, was that Delphi was a place that was um, north of Corinth. And it was a place that was seen as the um, epicenter of creation. It was a site of divine communication. It was where the gods uh, kind of spoke to humanity and gave them wisdom. Uh, and just by saying that, John is the only one who's heard. So you've not heard of that, Richard. Or maybe you didn't, you didn't want to put your hand up. Robin, same for you as well. Very wise. Must be in the wise sayings of the maxims of Delphi. Okay, those are two very, very famous moral codes for humanity as to how we should live a good life. But they obviously have not stood the test of time. Okay, who has heard of the Ten Commandments? Put your hand up if you've heard of the Ten Commandments. You've not heard of them, Susie. Oh, it's good. 
<laughs> okay, so a few more of you have heard of the Ten Commandments. Just to say, they're never actually called in the scriptures the Ten Commandments. Um, they were called the Ten Words. Greek is decalogue. Dec means ten. Log, as in logos, means words. Ten words. And uh, they were basically ten words that we call commandments that were given by God to Moses to give to a tribe at that time of freed slaves who were known as the Israelites. And they were nomadic late Bronze Age peasants. There was nothing particularly special about them at that time. And those 10 words were given at a place called Mount Sinai. And if you know the story, Moses goes up the mountain and he comes down with these two tablets of these 10 words given by God to give to the people. And, and they were given to the people so that those people might not keep them for themselves, which is obviously what happened with the Maxims of Delphi, uh, but, but basically so that those people could live that good life and demonstrate that good life to a watching world. Uh, they wanted to um, show how to live good and godly lives. That was the whole point of the Ten Words or Ten Commandments. And three and a half thousand years later, because it was about 1500 BC, um, they are still pretty well known. Now, I recognize you're a pretty um, biased crowd in that way. Uh, whether we went out into the streets of St. Peterport, we'd find the same reaction, I don't know. But I do think that more people would have heard of the Ten Commandments uh, than the Code of Hammurabi. And they seem to have a place, a significant place, in our modern world. That if, you, if you're a lawyer, and you might want to correct me on this afterwards, is that what lawyers do? Um, they, they kind of form the foundation of our legal systems in the Western world. And in many ways, they've set out the core values of civilization. These 10 words or commandments are actually only 300 words long in English, yet they've had a huge impact over time and across the globe. The evangelist J. John, I think he came here once, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Um, uh, he said, not, not <laughs> makes any difference whether he came here or not, uh, but, but he said that the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, are the maker's instructions for those he has created. They're the maker's instructions for those he has created. Yet at the same time, we find actually that many people might well believe in a maker or a god of some description. Uh, atheism is not as big as people say it might be. Uh, that they might believe in a god of some description, but they don't actually accept the maker's instructions. And what we're going to be doing over these next 10 weeks is actually looking at these 10 words or 10 commandments one by one. Uh, and we're going to listen to them now. Anna's going to read that to us. Uh, this, like I said, there are three times in the Old Testament, twice in Deuteronomy and once in Exodus. And so this is the one from Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. Is that right? Is that on? Yes. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless, 
who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give, shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. This is the word of the Lord. You might think, oh gosh, they're quite heavy things, aren't they? But we're going to be working our way through them um, over the next 10 weeks. But these commandments started in God. They were passed down to Moses, who passed them to the Israelites. And, and we find that in the Old Testament, they pay a lot of attention to them. But you also find that Jesus also pays attention to these 10 commandments. And a number of times, he does that within the Gospels. And the Ten Commandments are very much part of Judaism. Equally, they've become very much part of Christianity as well. And, and as you look at part of the discipleship process for people in the past, maybe not so apparent now, particularly in the West, but what you would find is that when people converted to Christianity, uh, they were taught three things. They were taught the Apostles' Creed. Does anyone know it off by heart? No? Um, maybe we've got some work to do. Uh, so people would know what they believed. They were taught the Lord's Prayer. People know that off by heart? Yeah? So people would know how to pray. And they were taught the Ten Words or Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes so people would know how to live. And there's a sense, actually, in which we ignore them at our peril. Um, that said, there are some people who would like us uh, in our Western uh, modern society not just to ignore the Ten Commandments, but actually to get rid of them altogether. They would see them as religious religious, I can't even say it, religious hogwash. Um, and, and they'd like us to bring in something new. So, Mike, we're going to go to that PowerPoint in just a moment. Uh, and so a few years ago, I can't remember what it was. Uh, so oh, don't put it up yet. Don't get, that's it, lovely. Um, I told you it would be a slick presentation. Um, a couple of atheistic humanists by the name of Bayer and Figdor, that, those weren't their first names. I don't know what their first names were. But they ran a competition offering $10,000 to the person who could come up with ten godless guidelines that would then replace the Ten Commandments. And so they basically wanted ten non-commandments. And there had 3,000 different entries, and uh, a panel of 13 people then made a decision as to which uh, ones they were going to choose. And this is what they look like. Uh, do you want to stick up the first slide? Could people see that? Ooh, uh, yeah, okay, I'm going I'm to read them out. Okay, so the first one is be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. The second one is, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. It's like fairy tales, or Christianity. Um, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Next slide. Um, every person has the right to control of their body. Uh, number five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Number six, 
be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize you must take responsibility for them. Number seven, oh, I don't think you'll be able to see that one. Treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Number eight, we have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Number nine, uh, this is my uh, favorite one, uh, there is no one right way to live. And we come back to that in just a moment. And number 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. Now, actually, as you kind of work your way through those, they, they all kind of sound okay, don't they, in many ways? Uh, there's no reference to God. Uh, but basically, in terms of trying to live a good life, they all look fine, you know. Um, but as you begin to look at them a bit further, you do begin to spot some contradictions and some kind of oddities. Number seven, uh, where it says, treat others as you would want them to treat you, is actually a summary of the golden rule that Jesus first put forward and is recorded in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, where he says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up all the law and the prophets. So despite in, in number five, uh, God is not necessary to be a good person, I would say that they have nicked something fairly significant from God. Maybe that's because all wisdom is actually God's wisdom. And, and, and I would also say, despite the fact that they don't want them to sound like commandments, and they say they are non-commandments because we don't want to tell you to do anything, I would say that quite a lot of them sound like commandments. Number 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. Sounds fairly commanding to me. Number one, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence that they carry the force of, a, you know, the, of new evidence. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting confused now. Uh, be open-minded to be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. And so, so what you find, actually, is as you work your way through them, they're not really non-commandments. They kind of carry the force of a moral ought to do something. You know, this is what you ought to do in order to live a good life. And so they feel like kind of heavy instructions in some ways. But my most interesting one is number nine. Can we go to that, Mike? Is that on that fourth slide? Yeah. There is no one right way to live. I find this really interesting because actually what they're saying is, is there is no right or wrong. You decide that for yourself. It's no one else's business because there is no one right way to live. It's a bit like, who remembers the Manic Street Preachers? Some of us. And they bought out an album. I think it was 1999. And it was, this is my truth. Tell me yours. It's all that, all that part of postmodernism. And there is no meta-narrative. And we can make up our own truth and believe what we think to be right and what we think to be wrong. Um, but the interesting thing, though, about number nine, is it, it kind of puts forward that there's no moral objectivity. But then at the same time, the other nine commandments or non-commandments kind of tell you how you ought to live in the right way. So there's kind of a contradiction in there, isn't it? Because if there is no one right way to live, then why, as commandment one says, be open-minded and be willing um, you know, to, to look at the evidence? Why, why, why follow that? I, no, I want to be closed mind. No, no, but you should be open mind. But you said there's no one right way to live. Oh, I'm sorry. There's a bit of a contradiction there. You know, why is it, uh, if they say there's no one right way to live, they say, why consider others? 
and their perspective. You know, why does it say, why leave the world a better place than when you found it? Why treat others as you would want them to treat you? You know, if there's no one right way to live, then why write 10 non-commandments down in the first place? Why write non-commandments if not to guide me in the right way to live? Are you with me or am I just confusing everyone? Uh, if there's really no one right way to live, okay, I'm going to get on my hobby horse now, then why is it that the liberal, progressive, atheistic, so-called tolerant crowd get very intolerant of me when I'm a Christian and I choose to live my life and hold on to my beliefs in a very different way from them? Can you feel my angst just bubbling up underneath? You know, we live in this age of tolerance as long as you believe what we tell you to believe. But there's no one right way to live. Oh, you want to live like that? Oh, no, you can't. We're not very happy about that. Do you see what I mean? It all gets very confusing. Basically, what it boils down to is you cannot have your cake and eat it. Amen? <laughs> Which is why I would say it's difficult to put forward a good way to live uh, a universal, objective, moral code when there is no belief or absolute principle such as God, where God's character determines what is good, because that's what the Ten Commandments do. They, they say there is one right way to live, and this comes from God. But people don't like that, do they? Now, some people might say that maybe... Let's leave God out of the equation. Maybe as humanity, we should just be left to work out how to live a good life amongst ourselves, which is what those 10 non-commandments were seeking to do. We don't need God involved, because as humanity, we can make good decisions, yes? You're not convinced. Let me remind you of something. The UK government attempt, uh, I think it was back in 2016, uh, to name a 200 million pound polar research vessel, a boat. It was decided by some marketing agency, I'd expect, to set up an internet vote asking UK citizens to choose a name for this new boat. They suggested that people look at names like Ernest Shackleton or Endeavour or Falcon, but what was the overwhelming runaway choice for the name of this new boat. What was it? Boaty McBoatface. And in the end, that's what humanity decided on the internet. Uh, and in the end, the agency weren't very happy with that, so they went for number four, which was Sir David Attenborough. The wisdom of crowds isn't always the wise way to go, is it? Which is why I think we need God, which is why I think we have Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, it says, uh, And God spoke all these words, these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Just briefly here, what we see in these couple of verses at the beginning um, is that before we get to the Ten Commandments, we recognize and we hear that this God is our God. Your God. I am your God. He's a personal God who knows us and who has, over time, made himself known. This God is not a capricious tyrant 
who is distant and aloof. Think about the Epicureans and all that they kind of thought about. This God is our God. He is on our side and actually giving us commands for our good. And he's a God in in that context then who has taken people from a bitter place, the slavery of Egypt, to a better place, to the land of promise. This God's nature is actually to rescue us from chaos and darkness of sin, in their case of slavery, and to take us to a place of freedom. And I think as we reflect on the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, I, can, I think that we can see a God who is a self-giving uh, God who gives of himself and expresses himself in gracious ways. And I think it's this personal, gracious, loving, rescuing, freeing God who then gives us these words to live. And when he gives us these words to live, it enables us to live good lives and lives of freedom and joy. The Ten Commandments aren't instructions as to how to get out of Egypt, a bitter place, but they are words or rules or commandments for a free people to stay free in a place of promise. So, uh, briefly, you'll be pleased to hear, let's look at commandment number one, not the ones on the non-commandments. Number one, you shall have no other God before me. You shall have no other God before me. Recently, someone who comes to Trinity, and I've just seen they're here tonight, and so I won't, I won't say what their name is, uh, they were telling me about their experience having been involved in emotionally healthy discipleship course. Uh, and they said that they had had a change of perspective. This is how I heard it when it came to their discipleship. And it's that whole sense of Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that rather than trying to fit God into their lives, they had been challenged to fit or to shape their lives around God. Which I think essentially is what this first commandment or this word is all about. It's all about us not being divided. It's about God being our priority in all things. Now, some of us uh, are old enough to remember US President Bill Clinton, and uh, he was once asked by a journalist which Olympic event he would choose to compete in. His answer was a decathlon because you had to do 10 different disciplines that you could concentrate on. There's a sense in which he had 10 priorities, as it were, to focus on. And and Bill Clinton... uh, it was observed that he was kind of the embodiment of what you would say is a modern-day lifestyle choice called compartmentalization. Don't ask me to spell it. Compartmentalization, which is basically, you could say, why he chose the decathlon. Not just one sport, but ten. Um, a vicar friend of mine, Chris Russell, wrote that Clinton was a peacemaker and a missile launcher. He was a friend of Israel He was a confidant of the Palestinians. He was a social conservative, and he was a liberal. He was an adulterer, and he was a good father. He was a loyal husband. He was a lousy husband. He told the truth, and apparently he lied. There's a sense in which he had compartmentalized his life. He told the truth in this part of his life, but he lied in this part. Of his life. And there's a sense in which living like that lacks integrity. 
And I think that we can do the same when it comes to our faith with God. We can compartmentalize our relationship with God. We might fit God into part of our lives, but not the whole of our lives. And God being in the whole of our lives, I think, is what is the outworking of that first commandment. You shall have no other God before me. And so what we might find is that someone is is very ruthless and tough and rude at work, and then they're fun-loving at home. They're a, a raucous drunk on a Saturday night, and they are an engaged worshipper on Sunday in church. We, we can kind of juggle with a variety of priorities rather than just being one and focused on one God. But that text, you shall have no other God before me, is all about God being our priority. I don't know if any of you have been watching the Christian news um, and a, about Hillsong and uh, fascinating and sad all at the same time to watch uh, as this kind of church, global church movement uh, begins to unfray at the seams. But one of the pastors, and this was one of the, on one of the programs, who was a pastor uh, called Carl Lentz in, in New York, and he oversaw a church there and done some incredible things. It was a Hillsong church, um, and it had grown exponentially. He was a friend of Justin Bieber's. God, imagine if I was a friend of Justin Bieber's. How many more people would come to church? Um <laughs> But, but actually, he was a friend of the stars. He was a great preacher. He was an adulterer. He was a gifted leader. He was a workplace bully. And, and I think, and therefore the grace of God go I, apart from the Justin Bieber bit. But, but that stems, I think, from disobeying the first commandment. You know, some of this compartmentalization, I think, comes from a notion that can be spoken about in churches, which says, have you got this next picture, Mike? Which says that we all have a God-shaped hole in our lives. It goes back to Blaise Pascal, actually, but it says we have this God-shaped hole in our lives. And it's often been used as an evangelistic kind of illustration to say you have this hole in your life and you can fill it with money and sex and work and power, but you're never going to be whole and satisfied until you fill it with God. You'll only be whole and complete when God fills that hole. But I would argue that what that idea has done is to reduce God's place in our lives to a whole, to a part of us, and not all of us. You know, we do not have God-shaped holes in our lives. We have God-shaped lives. And there is a massive difference. And there's a sense that, that when we come to live out that first commandment, you shall have no other gods but me, So what we're seeking then to do is let God have the whole of our lives and not just a part. Uh, We just spent four lovely days uh, in England with our latest grandson. Uh, We've been in Portsmouth, and so our son Sam and his wife Soph, they've got two children now. Uh, Rafe, born on Good Friday, uh, just over a week old, and he's lovely. And Wilbur is 21 months. Now, Wilbur, um, strangely enough, I don't know where he gets it from, but he's actually quite chatty. And, uh, and, and one, of, one of his favorite words, apart from puffer, which is me, um, one of his favorite words now is the word what? What do you think? No. Wilbur, come this way. No. Wilbur, hold puffer's hand. No. Wilbur, let's take this jumper off. No. I mean, it was relentless. 
I think that we can be a bit like that with God in some areas of our lives. We say yes to God, to some parts of our lives, and we say no to God for other parts of our lives. We fit God into part of our life rather than shape our lives around him. But the first word, the first commandment is it's, you shall have no other gods before me. God is our priority in all things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, martyr for Christ, German theologian, he said this, I should like to speak of God not on the boundaries, but at the center. Just to wrap up, I was going to do some stuff on the flip chart, but we'll do that another time. If we are keen to keep this commandment, I think we need to consider a couple of questions. First one is this, is are you fitting God into your life alongside a whole bunch of other things that you don't give him access to, or are you shaping your life around God? Another question, when it comes to your life, is God on the boundaries or is he at the centre? Would you like to stand? We're going to sing a final song. And uh, during that, um, there'll be opportunity for prayer. I think over here, (laughs) behind the fence. Uh, Don't go too far far behind the fence. We want to see you. Um, But but actually, um, if you like prayer for anything, you know, maybe you've got stuff going on in your life where you... There's a sense of chaos. You want God to bring some order. We'd love to pray with you and for you. But actually, if you sense that maybe um, you've compartmentalized your faith and you've said yes to God in some areas but no to God in others, um, then we'd love to pray that God would not just fill a hole, but God would fill the whole of you. Um, And then we then have the joy and the challenge of working out what that looks like on a Monday morning. So let's pray. So, Father, we, we thank you for these ancient words that speak very clear truth into today's world. And, and we pray uh, that we would pay attention to these ten words, that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we wouldn't just put you into a hole in our lives, but we'd allow you to have access to the whole of our lives. And and you give us the wisdom on our own and with others to work out what that looks like so that we might practice that long obedience in the same direction. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So prayer, if you'd like to receive prayer, and we'll sing.